welcome everybody to the latest episode of Media Sandwich, a podcast where I peruse the headlines of the entertainment industry and uh, prattle on about pop culture. And my name is Kyle Martinak. I am that guy. And uh, hey, a little piece of uh, trivia on me. My Dungeons and Dragons character is in fact named Prattle. Uh, he's a halfling bard, of course. And uh, he has never, ever won a fight. Not ever. Uh, tries really hard not to get into fights. He is unsuccessful. But anyways, we're here to talk about uh, what's going on in the world of video games and movies and comics and TV in that order. So, uh, you know what that means. we got to start with the video games. What's going on in video games? What do you think? My doggie's in my lap for this episode. I don't know why. She just decided, you know what? I'm not going to leave you alone, so you're in. You're in for a dog episode. So this is this is Jasmine, the the puffer dog, little poodle in my lap while I'm doing the headlines. Uh, <laughs> so welcome to the show. My second guest I've ever had with this new formula. Uh, Chris Pranger twice. Next, the dog. <laughs> Don't tell Chris I made that joke. Anyway, um, let's start with video game news. Uh, we're going to start with something that made me pretty damn excited. There was a leak on a Steam page for Star Wars Jedi Survivor. And what's that? That's the mu much-anticipated sequel to Jedi Fallen Order. Which, I really, I, I cannot stress this enough, how much of a gem Jedi Fallen Order is in a sea of always online multiplayer only multiplayer multiplayer only loot box garbage over the last decade especially Star Wars especially EA's decade of dominating the Star Wars IP in video games they made one game that is unimpeachably terrific and it's rare anymore that we get a big licensed IP video game like this that was just a standalone single-player adventure. And it was largely finished and complete upon release. As far as I remember, there were a whole lot of bugs or need for, you know, day one patches or anything like that. Almost like they actually finished the game before releasing it, which uh, also is rare. But yeah, uh, no point was I sold a season pass or cosmetic purchases or any of the crap that has cheapened the video game industry. But anyways, the next game, as this leak has suggested, is coming out March 16th of 2023. That was not supposed to be announced yet, but it was on that Steam page, so now it's out there that that was at very least a date that was uh, penciled in for Jedi Survivor. And this is interesting, because even though Black Friday has really had really big releases this year, we had Pokemon Violet and Scarlet, uh, we had Call of Duty, uh, Modern Warfare 2, we had God of War Ragnarok. That's a pretty stately and reserved release slate compared to how things play out after the first of the year these days. I mean, that was that's basically one for each console, right? I mean, Call of Duty is on PlayStation as well, but come on, if you're if you own an Xbox, that was the big game for Black Friday this year was Modern Warfare 2. If you own a, a Switch, it was Pokemon. If you own a PlayStation 5, it was God of War. But that's one per console. And after the first of the year, I mean, the video game industry seems to look at quarter one of the calendar year now, 
that's Thunderdome. That's when everything comes out. Really big, big, uh, every, I mean, we've got this big sequel to Jedi Fallen Order coming out at the very tail end of quarter one, but everything encompassing quarter one. We've got a Fire Emblem game. We've got a Dead Space remake. We've got a Resident Evil 4 remake. We've got Hogwarts Legacy, uh, Octopath Traveler 2, Destiny 2, uh, colon Lightfall. I don't know what that is, because Destiny is one of those always online, multiplayer-only games that I don't really care for. But it's going to be a big deal. Uh, Ubisoft has a big pirate game called Skull and Bones coming out as well. It's a crowded schedule for a lot of games that also have kind of crossing target audiences a bit, too. Like, you know, any any gamer could be the target audience for half a dozen games right there that are all coming out in the space of, like, a couple of weeks. It's nuts. Uh, but anyway, Jedi Survivor looks like uh, Cal Kestis, the lead character, is going to return with a little bit more of a roguish motif. He's got a blaster pistol now in addition to the lightsaber, uh, he has new force abilities, new lightsaber fighting styles. There are all sorts of outfits and uh, weapon combinations that you can do. Like there are, it looks like there are some pre-order uh, sets where you, you get like Han Solo's outfit and blaster. Uh, you know that that's kind of cool that you can mix and match your your aesthetic. That was one thing that that game did fine, but it could have been a little better is the uh, customization of the lightsaber and your outfit. It was cool, and I liked how every single piece of uh, clothing, every single piece of uh, lightsaber material, and even every paint job for your ship and your droid were unlockable. They were found in the game, in a chest. No need to buy any of that shit. But but the one thing was... It did kind of lack for variety, especially Cal's outfits. I mean, it's basically the same jumpsuit in three colors and then like a dozen or more ponchos that are all, you know, they get a little bit silly looking, some of them, but a a more variety in outfits would be great for this second time around. And the blaster getting to choose a blaster aesthetic that's kind of cool especially for folks who are super into the weapons of star wars but yeah it uh, apparently we're gonna run into some new and familiar characters uh the the dog's eating this up um you know it sounds like your typical star wars sequel it looks like it's gonna be more of the same it's gonna take the previous game up the ante uh raise the stakes and if I had to guess, I'd say Respawn probably has this planned out as a trilogy. That's that's what happens in Star Wars. You think of it in three parts. For good or ill, I think that uh, planning out 7, 8, and 9 was kind of the problem with the sequel trilogy, was that it had to be a trilogy. You didn't necessarily have to do that, but it's what everybody expected. In these games, though, hey, what happens in a Star Wars trilogy? The second entry is where things get dark and the good guys might lose a little bit. So I think that's probably what's going to be what Jedi Survivor is all about. It used to be Fallen Order. Okay, the, you know, the beautiful stately Jedi Order has fallen, and that's what that game is all about. It's right there in the title. This one, Jedi Survivor. So it's all about you know, it sounds a little darker. It sounds like we're actually going to get into the nitty gritty of how is he going to 
stay a step ahead of the empire not you know so much going on a quest so much as maybe just trying to survive maybe i'm reading a lot into that title though but uh i think honestly that it would be brilliant if cal's second entry take place right after rogue one like uh or right before rogue one rather like right as the the tide is going to turn and the the rebellion is going to become a real thing and then make that third final entry if that is indeed what they're doing have him come out of hiding after the fall of the empire you know after years of solitude get that that actor that that uh that my fellow ginger dude the one from shameless who plays cal kestis get a get a nice big thick red beard on him and have him come out of uh, years of solitude on a luke skywalker jedi island kind of thing that's my idea but hey anyway march 16 march 16 not 6th 16 right at the tail end of quarter one uh so be on the lookout per that steam page link the game is going to be like 130 gigs of hard drive space uh for pc which is probably the case on consoles as well as right in that area that sounds about accurate uh uh, I don't know if this one's going to be on Xbox One and PlayStation 4. This might be next-gen consoles only. This might be it. This might be the game that makes me nut up and get a next-gen console. This might be the one that breaks me and forces me to, to pay the premium and get the new console. I, If I have to, I'll get an Xbox Series S. They're cheap now. They're only like 250 bucks, and if you find them on sale... Because nobody wants them, because everybody likes to have a disc player, especially a 4K disc player. That's what I want. That's why I want a PlayStation 5, honestly, if I was to get a next-gen console. But that's neither here nor there, because uh, uh, we're talking other news. In other news, uh, I mentioned the Dead Space remake that's coming quarter one. Uh, I think that's coming out in February or so. But hey, while you're waiting for that, there's another space set uh, survivor horror game that released this week. It's called The Callisto Protocol. If you haven't heard about this one, I can't imagine why you haven't heard about this one. It's all over the place, people talking about it. It came out on Friday, and it sounds kind of interesting to me. From what I've read, it's a potentially really frustrating experience because people go in expecting a fun like fight with space zombies, you know, lots of blood and gore and shit, kind of like dead space you know uh and that's not really what it is that's uh, people looking for that are not going to get what they're what they expect it's not a learn how to win scenario like a dark souls or an elden ring either uh, from what i've read really the wet goopy monsters that are in this game are kind of you know kind of a foregone conclusion like an afterthought uh and the majority of the game is just the experience, the ambiance, the the audio has been really praised as very immersive and multi-level. Uh, the scenery and the characters are just gorgeous from what I've heard. They're rendered beautifully on the PS5 in particular. Uh, yeah, Josh Duhamel is the lead character, so you've got him rendered just beautifully. And But, you know, if you get in trouble in the game, he dies in the most graphic nuts ways like his head is just twisted right off uh shit like that so that's really interesting to hear about but uh from what i hear that that gets a little bit uh repetitive because it's an unskippable uh animation when it happens so if you die a whole bunch trying to fight these 
zombies, uh, yeah, you're going to get really pissed off after a while. But anyways, uh, the Kotaku review had a really interesting headline where it called the Callisto Protocol more death stranding than dead space. That was the phrase they used. And wow, because this is the brainchild of Glenn Schofield, uh, who calls it a spiritual sequel or successor to Dead Space. He was, you know, part of the original Dead Space. But the gameplay in this one, in Callisto Protocol, far less action-oriented, more just like getting from one point on the map to another safely, really emphasizing survivor, survival over, uh, you know, action and fighting back, and then uncovering a lot of the story, kind of the way... Death Stranding was, where it was, a lot of it was about the the world that you're inhabiting and the story that you're uncovering, the interactive movie aspect of it, which sounds intriguing to me, honestly. I, uh, yeah, I will say that this is exactly why my perfect entry in this subgenre of survival horror, especially sci-fi survival horror, my platonic perfect of that subgenre is Alien Isolation, because it has both sides of it. It's just a jaw-dropping, immersive experience. The whole environment and the sensory input is so amazing. The sounds, the the light and shadow, the way it behaves. Uh, the plot is more than enough to keep you moving from one objective to another. You just want to get to the next spot so that you can see how things progress, how you're going to get out of this horrible situation. But also, the action and the interactivity, the actual gameplay, really, really good. Uh, I don't normally like crafting in games. I find survival horror games also, just in general, can be kind of irritating because I get pissed off about the ammo shortages, the stealth mechanics, because there are some games that try to include way too much. They try to be an action game and a stealth game and a crafting game and a tower defense game. Like, they try to cram all this shit into one game, so they don't do any of it well. They do all of it kind of adequate, adequately at best. Uh, Alien Isolation's the rare game that did a lot of those things very, very well. Uh, but yeah, that game nails all of those factors in just the right way. But I'm kind of intrigued by the Callisto Protocol. I might get into it, uh... I sometimes am in the mood for just like an interactive movie kind of thing. I'm that guy though. That's me. I mostly, I'm into games. I got into games because they let me feel like I'm inside a story. Often a story that's either just straight up a movie or very movie adjacent. That's why I'm a big Rockstar fan. I love their games because they're very cinematic. I mean, the first game that I got hardcore into was GoldenEye, which is just playing, hey, you're James Bond in you, Kyle, your favorite James Bond movie at the time. So, yeah, what can I say? This is kind of my jam. Uh, it's available on PlayStation 4 and 5, and Xbox One and Series S and X, as well as PC, of course. So maybe I'll jump into that one before I start thinking about my next console and Jedi Survivor in the coming months. But yeah, that's, uh, that's just video games this week. We've got a lot of stuff coming up. A lot of, uh... A lot of uh, looking ahead we're doing this week, which uh, is also what we're doing in movies. Uh, my love of movies we were talking about. Hey, we've got some trailers, folks. Trailers galore landed this last week. Just a bunch of coming attractions for this next summer. 
uh, you know, summer in the movie industry starting in like early May now, which is ridiculous how it's like that now, but that's the way it is. We're looking at a lot of movies coming out in May, June, July. Uh, and it, it's, they, the big studios dropped up three gigantic trailers for this summer all on the same day. It was like a cafeteria tray getting spoonfuls, just plop, plop, plop. Here's all the slop that you want, kid. Uh, <laughs> get to the trailers, Kyle. Stop fucking using these, these choked analogies. Um, <laughs> so the first trailer was Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. We finally have a title for this movie. We can stop calling it Indiana Jones 5. Good. Uh, why use numbers anymore, right? Well, Indiana Jones never used numbers, so that's fine. But the Dial of Destiny. Okay. It's alliterative. I like that. Uh, it doesn't have the same ring as Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Last Crusade. It kind of has a Temple of Doom feel to it, doesn't it? Kingdom of the Crystal Skull sounds like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Dial of Destiny sounds like the Temple of Doom. You, you know what I'm saying. Like, like you know, from a from a structural point of view, that, that subtitle is uh, sounds like a dark... A darker uh, chapter like the Temple of Doom, maybe. But hey, watch the trailer, and hey, funny enough, no moon stuff, no no uh, NASA, no no Indiana Jones in Mission Control, no Indiana Jones in a moon suit or anything like that. Uh, no rocket scientists. Uh, looks like a fairly straightforward Indiana Jones movie, honestly. There was... Uh, the big headline, the thing that everybody dove into was the de-aged Harrison Ford in there. There's one prominent shot where they got they got him tied up. There's a bag on his head. They whip the bag off and it's, I mean, it's like, you know, maybe not 1981 Harrison Ford, but it's easily like 1990 Harrison Ford. It's at very least, it's like the fugitive Harrison Ford, which, okay, you know, cool. Uh, it's some of the better de-aging I've seen. Granted, it's a very quick shot in a trailer, but, you know, it's uh, it looks a hell of a lot better than the ghoul-like shit going on in Rogue One, or even the weird uh, digital Mark Hamill that we got in The Mandalorian. Uh, e even the stuff that we see in the Marvel movies, in what feels like every Marvel movie has the de-aging scene. At least it was for a couple of years there, where it was like... Here's Robert Downey Jr. when he was 21 years old. Here's, uh, you know, Kurt Russell when he was only, you know, 27 years old. Here's uh, uh, Michael uh, Michael Douglas when he was uh, in the 80s. He, and, and every one of them had to have it. And it seemed like they were doing it to ramp up to Captain Marvel, which was going to have Samuel L. Jackson de-aged through the whole movie. And I wonder if that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Um, uh, I almost think we might get some extensive 1940s era Nazis in an extended flashback scenario. Like, if I had to guess, I would imagine Indy spends the entire opening sequence of the movie, and it's 1940s Indy, so it's roughly, like, what, 1993 era Harrison Ford, and it looks like, based on what I saw in the trailer, that he might be rescuing Toby Jones, 
I'm going to guess he's the Nazi rocket scientist who's looking to defect, and that's Indy's mission during the opening bit of the movie, and then that, you know, leads into what goes on later in the 60s. Um, yeah, they've taken special care to explain the in this trailer. In the trailer, they explain that Phoebe Waller-Bridge is his goddaughter. Don't even worry about it. Nothing romantic happening there. No need to cancel Indiana Jones. What a weird world we live in where that's actually, like, something that we have to worry about. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, I know that people have gone back to reevaluate Raiders and the whole romance with Marion and the age gap, and hey, I get it. Yes, it's gross. It's weird, and it's uncomfortable. It's a very odd an unnecessary, really, detail in an otherwise amazing movie. Um, you know, it does serve to make Indiana Jones less than, uh, perfect. It makes, it, it gives you one prominent, uh, part of him that makes him an ordinary flawed human. Uh, possibly a little too flawed, though. Uh, a very weird choice back there in the early 80s to add that detail. But, hey... Don't worry about it here. People are, uh, people were up in arms for a second. Like, is she going to be a romantic interest to him? No, she's not. It's a very father-daughter thing. They're, they're very, very explicit about that. Um, yeah, people are also thinking that the titular Dial of Destiny might be a time travel device of some kind. That stands to reason. It kind of sounds like that, the Dial of Destiny, um, that might plot-wise help get, you know, classic 40s, 30s and 40s Nazis into the 1960s, something like that. That's possible. Uh, I don't know if that's the case, though. It had very few plot details in the trailer. It's mostly just showcasing a big car chase. There's a gag with the whip at the very end of it. That de-aged shot of Ford is what really captured folks. That was the thing that everybody zeroed in on. Um, I'm getting kind of optimistic about this movie, though. I think, honestly, hey, on the other hand, uh, with the other stuff in the trailer, Mads Mikkelsen looks like a terrific Nazi villain. Uh, Boyd Holbrook looks like he's going to be a very formidable heavy. He's got a, a big blonde crew cut and a motorcycle. Looks very menacing. I think this could work. It might be a thing. It might work out. Um, but anyway, that trailer landed. That movie's coming out. Uh, June... Yeah, June 30th. That one's coming out June 30, so right in the heart of the summer, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, the, next we've got Transformers Rise of the Beasts. And I'm like, uh, okay, you know? I'll be honest with you, totally forgot the Transformers franchise was a thing. Uh, I think a lot of people did, because the last one we had was Bumblebee, and that was what, 2018, I want to say? That was a long time ago, dude. Uh, yeah. Uh, if there's one thing I like looking at this trailer, it has distinct character designs for all the robots. It definitely, uh, they're taking all the elements of the Michael Bay movies, the kind of epic, uh, this is the end of the world kind of tone, and the and then they're taking elements of Travis Knight's uh, Bumblebee movie, like the more cartoon and toy-influenced uh, character designs and the human-robot relationships factor, and they're kind of mashing those together to make this, uh, which might work, honestly. 
I liked the Beast Wars show when I was a kid. That was kind of my Transformers. That was my way in. And it was fine. It, you know, it wasn't great plot wise, but it had pretty cool character designs. And it was, I think that was also like an early CGI cartoon. So it looked really cool at the time. Kind of like Reboot. Anybody remembers Reboot? And okay, I'm not 100% on what's going on based on this trailer. But if you're a car person and you like a Porsche 911, uh, you'll like this trailer because that's the hero transformer way showcased in this trailer. Uh, a big chase sequence. Also the, the little, the wow, cool, uh, button on the end of the trailer. Uh, I'm, I'm reading that this character, the, the Porsche might be, uh, Mirage. Okay. I don't know. I don't know Transformers that well. There's also a female Transformer that's got a couple of showcase moments in the trailer with her own human buddy. And I, I couldn't tell you which character that is either. I'm sorry. I Transformers is just, it's a gap in my knowledge. I don't know it that well. I mostly know what's in these movies, honestly. Michael Bay's Transformers is the Transformers that I know the most of, and I haven't even seen all of them, to be honest with you. I think I missed one in the middle there, either th uh, three or four. But, you know, I'll tell you this. I think Bumblebee was a big wake-up call for Universal Studios. As successful as Michael Bay was in making this franchise big event movies, which, you gotta give it up to him. Did you think that that was gonna be possible, that tr Transformers would be as big of an event movie as, maybe not as big as Star Wars, but certainly as big as uh, a Jurassic Park sequel or something like that. It's kind of comparable, right? They do really well worldwide, I'm pretty sure, and that's probably where a lot of the money comes from. But uh, yeah, as big as those movies have been under Michael Bay, and they each make a shit ton of money, Bumblebee cost about half as much what The Last Night cost. Bumblebee is, granted... It's the lowest grossing Transformers movie of the six that we've gotten. It's the lowest grossing one, but it cost about $135 million instead of the $260 plus million that The Last Night cost. And they released Bumblebee in December of 2018 rather than in the summertime. And they had it releasing up against a whole bunch of shit. They had Bumblebee released up against Aquaman... Into the Spider-Verse, a Mary Poppins sequel, an animated Grinch movie, a Wreck-It Ralph sequel. They had a ton of stuff. Like, it was a diverse competition for audiences that December. And Bumblebee did pretty damn well, honestly. For a, for a movie that was only $135 million for a Transformers movie, did pretty well. And it was also the most critically appreciated Transformers movie to date. It was kind of the first one where critics were like, no, yeah, this is kind of how you do this. You really, if you're going to have human characters at all, they have to be real human characters and we have to care about them. Uh, and that's how you make one of these movies. And it might have just served the movie better that there were only three Transformers in it total other than the opening sequence, which was on uh, on the Transformers planet, whatever you call it, planet what's its uh <laughs> but anyway like yeah i i think uh the movie this movie this new one rise of the beasts clearly a case of okay what did people like about that movie and how do we marry it to these statistically proven to make us a shit ton of money cgi monstrosities that these movies typically are 
And this franchise, I mean, it's a real peculiar one. It does. This does not look like a surefire hit to me. This uh, Rise of the Beasts. This look. This looks like it could be a big boondoggle, but with Transformers movies, I'm usually wrong. That usually means it's going to do oddly well. Uh, so we'll see. This one is directed by uh, Stephen Capel Jr. Capel Jr. Again, I'm bad with names. Take a drink. Uh, <laughs> Stephen Capel Jr. Or Capel, uh, whatever. Uh, he, he's a very young director. He's like, uh, he was listed on one of those 30 under 30 lists that they do for uh, people uh, in the industry. So he's young, possibly younger than me. And he's, he's only done one real big movie, which ironically enough was Creed 2, which was another one of the movies that opened against Bumblebee that December in 2018. So, yeah, presumably they snapped him up because he's capable of making a big franchise sequel, uh, but he will come under the movie by committee studio notes kind of setup. The, 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 again, this thing that I'm constantly railing against, but... Uh, that means this movie probably won't have Michael Bay's distinct bombast to it. It might mean the movie isn't three hours long as well. That'd be nice. A Transformers movie under two and a half hours. That's what I loved about Bumblebee is the rewatchability factor on it is through the roof by comparison. Because who the hell has three hours to watch uh, Revenge of the Fallen or Dark of the Moon? Uh, I, I'm really extending my Transformers uh, knowledge at this point, even coming up with those subtitles. Cause they all sound the same to me. I don't, I mean, I know it's so basic bitch to be like, Michael Bay sucks. Honestly, he doesn't when he does movies that, uh, that aren't factory crap like that. Uh, did you see ambulance ambulance is terrific. It's the best Michael Bay movie in years in possibly decades because it's not a transformers movie. I think that's the key. Michael Bay sucks when he's making, pre-packaged crap like the the movie equivalent of a military mre that's what the transformers movies are to me that's what you know sorry to say that's what pearl harbor was to me that's what armageddon was to me like they're movies that are basically almost three hours long and they're essentially a three hour long trailer that's what those movies all feel like to me ambulance uh uh the rock movies like that Michael Bay makes terrific movies, terrific, big, bombastic, stupid action extravaganzas. And sometimes I'm in the mood for that. And Ambulance was a great one. I recommend that wholeheartedly. One of my favorite movies of the last year. Uh, that's a that's a good one. Last year? Was that one 2022? I don't even remember. Time means nothing anymore. If you can't tell, I've had a lot of coffee today. <laughs> Uh, so let's move on to our third trailer, third and final trailer for this uh, this trailer roundup is basically what this episode is this week. And this one is, you guessed it, we haven't talked about Marvel in like five minutes. So Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the trailer landed that very same day as those other two. It was insane. Um, yeah, and that certainly looks to me like this is going to be the gut-wrenching final chapter. This is going to be where shit goes down that's irreversible. Uh, James Gunn's pulling out all the stops on this one. The dialogue in the trailer is all about one last ride, the end. Uh, we've got flashes of Rocket Raccoon like he's being captured, possibly tortured. 
it kind of looks for a second like he might be on his deathbed to me, like he's grabbing hands with with uh, Chris Pratt. Later on in the trailer, we get it, we get a classic back to back spinning around firing guns move that usually Rocket would be a part of, but instead it's Peter Quill and Groot with Groot holding like a dozen guns at once. It's a very cool looking shot, but it just kind of serves to me the idea that it really, really looks like we're going to lose Rocket Raccoon in this one. Like Rocket Raccoon's going to die in this one? I mean, Groot already died in the first one. Do we need to do that again? Uh, I don't I don't know if I like that. But anyway, other things we see in the trailer... Uh, Adam Warlock shows up. I'm finally after that tease at the credits stinger of uh, Volume Two, which God, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two was way back in 2017, folks. That's so long ago in Marvel movie uh, terminology. 2017 from from now. That's you know from when the movie is going to come out. It's an eternity. It's six years. But hey, um. I'm not sure if Adam Warlock is the main, like, across-the-whole-movie villain, or if he's just, like, showing up for a touch. But Gamora's also here, uh, after the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey shit that happens in Endgame that makes her not remember the years of being a member of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Effectively, that didn't happen to her. Uh, Zoe Saldana's probably relieved for this to be her final appearance as the character. She recently did an interview where she openly said, yeah, I felt trapped in this franchise. I, I feel trapped when I do stuff like this. It's funny. She, I'm not sure if she was talking about just Marvel or if she was also talking about Star Trek and Avatar, because among those three roles, that's been her entire career basically since... I mean, can you think of, I can't think of another big budget, big, like, uh, blockbuster movie she's been in that hasn't been one of those three franchises since, I mean, Columbiana, which was like 2011, I want to say, 2010, 2011, and that was in between Star Treks, and it was right after Avatar by like a year or two, so yeah. I mean, I'm sure she's ready to move on to something else. Who among them doesn't feel a little bit trapped? I'm sure Chris uh, Evans definitely felt trapped as Captain America. You can see that in the roles that he's been picking since leaving the role. Uh, He's constantly playing shitheads, which is fun. Uh, Even Chris Pratt, I think, might feel a little bit trapped, being that, you know, he's only allowed to be stoic guy with gun or less stoic, goofier guy with gun. Uh, you know, that's pretty much his whole career now, is being guy, buff guy with gun, might be able to tell a joke every now and then. Who among them doesn't feel a little... Uh, okay, Vin Diesel probably doesn't feel that trapped. <laughs> Vin Diesel, I feel like, isn't capable of feeling trapped in a role. But uh, at any rate... I don't know. This one does seem, based on that trailer, oddly self-serious. There is not a lot of fun in this trailer. The trailer feels very, very self-serious, not just for a Marvel movie, but for a Guardians of the Galaxy movie especially. The fact that there, there is a needle drop in the in the trailer, but there's no fun to it. Like, I almost, I'm getting a little skittish that the holiday special was, here's one last dose of fun, and then the movie is going to be all, like, relentless, like, 
suffering and sorrow because it's a, a saying goodbye movie. And uh, I'm not looking forward to that. If it is that I don't want, I don't want to be sad to, to say goodbye to the guardians of the galaxy. I know I will be probably cause they're a lot of fun. I really don't want a whole like two hour plus movie that's about me being sad that I'm never going to see rocket raccoon again because he's dead possibly, or I won't ever see Dave Batista as Drax again. That I'm actually not, uh, that that's not too big of a deal because Dave Batista is finally getting to move on and do some real acting and stuff. But anyway, I'm all over the place with this one. I just want to say guardians of the galaxy volume three, the trailer is startling in how earnest it looks. Uh, there's hardly any goof ups, if any, in the trailer. So that's an interesting way to market it. That's an interesting, uh, coming, coming from an advertising point of view. It's a really weird way to say, Hey, you remember your goofy space buddies? Why don't you come and see them just get their shit rocked? Uh, I don't know. It looks like they're probably fighting Kang the Conqueror. So this, we're definitely, the Marvel movies are finally transitioning into this is what we're building up to for phase five. This is what we're going into is we're gonna, we're gonna fight Kang the Conqueror. Uh, that's our, that's going to be our big bad, our big villain. But Hey, you know what? Speaking of, uh, speaking of comics and comic related stuff. Uh, oh, one thing, uh, James Gunn did tweet that he's making plans and he left it with, cause you know, he started at DC this last month. He said making plans. And that was his caption for an image of, uh, an Alex Ross painting, uh, from DC's kingdom come it, uh, the, the famous, uh, cover image of kingdom come, which, whoa, if he is planning to adapt kingdom come, that's a really big swing and it's a really great end game level goal to reach with the DC movies if that is in fact what he's doing. So power to him. Wow. What a, what a, what a crazy idea. But anyways, uh, talking comics, actual comic books and comic book industry. One thing I wanted to touch on is a little bit inside baseball. Uh, being a Portland boy, I have a strong affinity for a couple of comic book publishers that are based here. Namely, I love Dark Horse Comics with all my heart, and also Oni Press. Uh, if you if you aren't familiar with Oni Press, they've been responsible for some of my favorite graphic novels over the last 20 years. Uh, for starters, hey, y'all know me, I'm a big Kevin Smith fan. Oni Press was the publisher of the first Kevin Smith comic books. They did the Clerks uh, trade paperback which was an anthology book with a bunch of different shorter quick stop stories, uh, all in black and white. They also did Chasing Dogma. If you don't know what that is, it was like a three issue story that tells the tale of what Jay and Silent Bob are up to from the moment they leave the diner in Chasing Amy right up to the moment they jump into frame in Dogma, which was a cute, fun story. Uh, that book essentially is the rough outline for what Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back becomes. It's a road movie with the two of them and a monkey, right? Uh, but Oni has had a bunch of terrific books. They did the Scott Pilgrim series, uh, one of my absolute favorites. They did, this is another, oh, big book for me, Greg Rucka's Queen and Country. If you've never heard of this series, find them, devour them. It's a series of uh, stories about British espionage and black ops agents. And it's this 
absolute labyrinth of political intrigue and kick-ass action scenes. It's like Jason Bourne meets The Crown. Swear to God, it's a great, great book series, and really thick, too. Very thick graphic novels. Oni has always had an eye for unique art and complex stories that way. So, anyway, going back to 2019, I wasn't even aware of a lot of what was going on. Oni Press merged with Lion Forge Comics, a company that was based in Missouri, I think. And they merged and became a subsidiary of Polarity Limited, a media conglomerate company kind of thing. And things started to go down the tubes pretty rapidly. Uh, I mean, of course, the pandemic wreaks total havoc on the comic book industry at that point. For the first time, like, ever, Diamond halted the printing and distribution of hard copy comics for, like, a couple of weeks there. It was some dire shit for everybody. But Oni Lion Forge, as it's now referred to, uh, had a lot of staff shakeups, like, almost immediately. They had layoffs, a change in editor-in-chief once or twice, and then a couple, couple of, you know, years go by. And uh, Lion Forge had been the publisher of the book Gender Queer. We talked about this book a while back. A, a Virginia politician tried to sue the publisher as well as Barnes and Noble or something, uh, calling on this old state law that the book was obscene in content. Keep in mind, it's largely it's a graphic novel that tells a loose autobiographical story about coming out. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that messed with, uh, Oni Lionforge internally. There was a lot of legal problems with that. I think that lawsuit finally got thrown out by the court. I'm not sure where it is, uh, at present, but suddenly, since then, that was this last summer, uh, lots of people have suddenly gotten fired. James Lucas Jones, the longtime honcho over at Oni Press, was fired after being named editor-in-chief uh, he was fired alongside Charlie Chu. Uh, both of them were co-owners of Oni at one point prior to the merger and whatnot. Lots of senior editorial staff were also axed or left the company. And this all happened in the space of just like a couple of weeks this last summer. And right around that time, Oni surrendered their floor space and their booth and their panels at San Diego Comic-Con because... Well, I mean, who would even be there to run it at that point? Almost everybody was let go. Uh, and then right around that point, uh, later on in the summer, a freelancer at Oni, uh, Christine Stewart, uh, better known as Steens, Steens Stewart, uh, she was at one point an editor at Lion Forge, and at this point she was a freelancer at Oni. She started a social media snowball that Oni had not been paying their creators their royalties. And then a bunch of other creators chimed in as well, saying the same, so it was substantiated, at least among them. Things are looking really bad over there. And that brings us to this week, which uh, Polarity named Hunter Gorenson the new president and publisher at Oni Lion Forge, effectively replacing Jones and Chu in their roles. Jones was the uh, publisher, uh, uh, Chu was the president of operations and stuff, if I remember right. I'm, I might be getting titles wrong. But, yeah, who's Hunter Gorenson? Uh, he was one of the founding dudes over at Valiant Entertainment back in 2011. If you listen to this show a lot, you know I really romanticize the return of Valiant Comics back then, about a decade ago, when they cropped up out of nowhere and 
absolutely took over uh, the comic book industry with the summer of Valiant. And he was the vice president of marketing and communications when that launched. So he's been in the comic book industry for more than a decade, but he also has some TV production chops. He uh, worked for a company called Hive Mind, which uh, they produced Netflix's The Witcher, as well as Amazon's The Expanse. So pretty high quality stuff right there. Very nice nerd culture cr credentials. Uh, in 2021, he came back to comics. He started working for Boom Studios. And he seems to be a big name on the business side of things. Uh, not to say that he has no creative chops, but a lot of his titles and his expertise seems to fall under the marketing, the business decisions, the profit-driving stuff. And I bring all of this up because, hey, look, I'm guilty of this and you hear it all over uh, pop culture websites and whatnot. We hear about and we talk about this a lot, where the bigger comic book companies... Uh, you'll hear me mutter and complain on here and on social media that Marvel comics seem more like just a marketing device for the movies and the, the merchandising and the theme parks and shit, and that DC has been steadily edging away from comic books as a medium and embracing kind of a next-gen outlook of themselves as a multimedia company. They famously changed their URL from DC Comics to DC.com, uh, and it's happening... Here, even with the smaller, scrappier publishers, Oni Press was about as boutique as you could possibly get and still remain within the top 10 or 15 publishers of comics in the country. Uh, and, and now it seems like those days are behind us. If I had to guess, you know, shit like Scott Pilgrim and Queen and Country, we're never going to see that kind of stuff again. That, that, th those days are behind us. Even the smaller joints are just going to start being mills for licensed IP stuff. Uh, for instance, Oni, Lion Forge, they have Invader Zim and Rick and Morty. They have the, the licenses for those. So what can I say? Expect to see a lot more books on the wall of those things in the immediate future. I, myself, I, I'll bet folding money right now that Mr. Poopy Butthole from Rick and Morty will have a standalone comic book issue or adventure before Oni puts out anything as artsy or gutsy as they used to. Like, uh, here's another, uh, old Oni press, uh, gem that I want everybody to check out. Petrograd. Petrograd. If anybody remembers it, it was a gorgeous hardcover graphic novel, this beautiful red hardcover about the attempted assassination of Rasputin during world war one. Uh, amazing book, amazing story that you would, you would never dream of, uh, reading a book in, uh, in sequential art about that premise. And the art was great. The color palette is all rusty reds and sunset hues. It's such an amazing combination of story and artwork. Seek that one out if you can find it. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, uh, you can find the hardcover somewhere, but anyway, so long to my beloved little scrappy publisher, because they're just another cog in some media company. I realize this is a show called Media Sandwich, and it's ironic for me to turn up my nose and sniff at that, but I'm about sick as a dog hearing about media companies, because they do a lot of business, and they put out very little in the way of actual original media anymore. They're just... they're content mills, you know? They trade IP like cards in a game of gin. Uh, anyway, that's all I had to say about comic books. It's kind of a bummer. Uh, 
it's it's a bummer, but maybe Gorenson, maybe he'll do some great things with Oni. I don't know. I really enjoyed the Summer of Valiant when he was a part of that, so who's to say he might actually take Oni to the next level and uh, do some great things with them. I, I wish him well. I, I wish Oni Press well, because I love that company. But let's move on to TV. Let's talk about some more, uh, oddly enough, some more coming attraction shit. Uh, another, another trailer that dropped, more like a teaser. That 90s show. That 90s show. Uh, weird that this is happening now. Because uh, I don't think there's anybody who remembers that 70s show as fondly as I do. So this was a big deal for me. Uh, for one thing, Kurtwood Smith and Deborah Jo Rupp, they look fantastic in this. And they haven't missed a beat. It's like the show never went off the air as far as the two of them and their performances. I am floored by, by this whole concept, though. The concept of rebooting that 70s show 20 years later setting it 20 years later in the 90s, so capturing that millennial nostalgia, not just for the original show, but for the era that the original show aired in, because that show started in, like, 96 or 98, I want to say. And the funniest part, not bringing back any of the main cast of teenagers as adults, at least not as main characters, and instead anchoring the show on the true MVPs of the original Red and Kitty Foreman. Uh, to be fair, Topher Grace, Laura Prepon, uh, Mila Kunis, Ashton Kutcher, Wilmer Valderrama, they're all coming back to make guest appearances, because of course they are. I mean, come on. Uh, Danny Masterson was not available <laughs> due to uh, troubles. Uh, unfortunately, not prison uh, terms. Uh, at this point. Uh, I don't know if you saw that. Hung jury on that. Hmm. But, yeah, the only thing that really gives me pause about this show is that uh, it's a half-hour sitcom that's going to be on Netflix. Uh-oh. Netflix has the worst track record of any streaming service when it comes to original uh, sitcoms, specifically sitcoms. They all stink. Netflix makes a lot of stinkery doos when they try the 30-minute uh, sitcom. That blockbuster show that landed a few weeks ago, great cast, great showrunner, no jokes. Uh, the Ranch, which was at one point the closest thing to a That 70s Show revival, dog shit. Terrible show. And it can't, it can't fall on the cast, because everybody in that show... Even Danny Masterson, you know, admittedly, guy's good in a sitcom. He's not very good in real life, apparently, but, you know, you can't blame that show on the people who are in it, because they were all good. It's just the show itself, terrible. Uh, that Kathy Bates weed dispensary show, Disjointed? Yeah, ick. Uh, Fuller House? Yeesh. So, keep in mind, I'm talking traditional sitcom structure here. I think Netflix has about two traditional sitcom structure shows that are worth a damn. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and One Day at a Time. Those were the only two that have ever really had legs for me. So, you know, I'm really spooked by that 90s show being a three-camera laugh track sitcom on Netflix. Even if it's good, 
we'll get what two seasons maximum maybe 10 to 13 episodes per season at most and then it's probably canceled because not enough people are watching it you know or whatever the only guaranteed silver lining here is that Kurtwood Smith and Deborah Jo Rupp are exec producers on it. Presumably, they got a big payday out of it. Good. They deserve it. I'm glad they got it. They're both terrific. I love them. Uh, and and it's it's a little bit comforting to see them. Uh, they were kind of my TV parents. Some, you know, older folks will talk about how the Brady parents might have been their sitcom parents or, uh, or uh, the, the Keaton family from Family Ties was a lot of people's sitcom family or uh, Growing Pains, what have you. That 70s show, that was my comfort sitcom when I was a teenager. That was the show that taught me how to be a teenager and how to stay out of trouble and hang out, you know, down the street. But looking out for that, that's coming in January already. That That's rolling really soon. That's just a couple of weeks from now. Um... I only had one other piece of news TV-wise. Uh, it's a quick casting news. Michael Gandolfini is joining Disney Plus's Daredevil Born Again alongside Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, no idea who he's playing. They didn't announce anything like that, but I found this worth noting because I really enjoy Michael Gandolfini in The Many Saints of Newark. It's such a very interesting, weird bag of choices, that movie. If you're a Sopranos fan and you haven't watched The Many Saints of Newark, give it a watch because you'll be at very least fascinated, maybe morbidly fascinated. It might not be your jam, but it's a, it's a really fun, weird watch. Um, and and having James Gandolfini's kid come in and play the teenage prequel to his father's iconic role, really gutsy, risky move for both both Michael Gandolfini himself and for David Chase as the creator. And I think whether you thought the prequel movie was complete shit, or if you thought that it was like a misunderstood triumph, Gandolfini's performance in it is one of the few things I think everyone agreed on was one of the highlights. He's bizarrely not that vital a part of the story being told. It's almost obligatory. Like, well, you know, it's like Venom, in that third Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, like we have to have him in here, but let's just, we'll do it. We'll do it. And then we'll get back to the actual story that I want to tell. That's a little bit how it feels, but, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he really shines though. And I'm excited to see Michael Gandolfini move away from his dad's shadow and go off and do something that showcases him in a different context. I made the joke that 2021 was just a weird year for the sons of beloved dead actors between him and Cooper Hoffman's big moment with Licorice Pizza. I almost wish those two guys would do something together to kind of acknowledge and shake off that unshakable feeling of expectation in the wake of their fathers and their careers and their deaths. But I guess that'll never happen, though, because they're a little too close to each other in terms of type. So nobody would want to cast them opposite each other. But I feel like a conversation between the two of them would be fascinating about living up to that expectation. Anyway, I can't wait to see him in uh, Daredevil Born Again. I just can't wait for Daredevil Born Again. I'm so glad Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio get to come back as those characters. Um, Yeah, speculation online is that Michael Gandolfini might be playing... Oh no... 
Kingpin's son, Richard Fisk, who, if you don't follow the comics, he's obsessed with taking over his father's empire and his persona as the Kingpin, which... I mean, come on. If that's the case, I really... I hope they give him a buttload of money to suffer through that kind of naked typecasting. That's just... I mean, I really hope he's someone else, honestly. I really hope he's not Richard Fisk. Just make him not a mobster's son in something, for the love of God. Uh, <laughs> poor Michael Gandolfini. Um, let him be a normal person in something. Maybe we should have done that with his father some more, too, because I don't know if you've seen uh, James Gandolfini in anything other than The Sopranos. Guy was a brilliant actor and was able to play vastly different roles, but not a lot of people ever saw those vastly different roles. So let's not make the same mistake with the kids. Same thing with Cooper Hoffman. Let's not make the same mistake. Let's let him be his own man. Let him do his own acting. But anyways, uh, that's all the time we have for Media Sandwich this week. Thanks for tuning in and hanging out, as always. I really appreciate my listeners uh, showing up for me in the last couple of weeks with my broken foot and everything. This is one of the few times I get to talk a blue streak about this shit with people who, you know, presumably are interested in it. So thank you so much. And hey, like I've been saying, if you want to get me a nice early holiday gift... Uh, here's a really cheap one. Just get on your, get on your podcasting app and subscribe to the show. Uh, write a review of the show, uh, you know, rate it, you know, make sure that other people can see it, spread the word so that I know how I'm doing. I know, I want to know how, how the show is in this format that I started, uh, boy, some months ago already. Hasn't it been like, it's been four, almost five months. That's crazy. I've been... I've been rocking this for quite a while, rocking the mic by myself largely. Thank you so much to Chris for showing up, and thank you to the dog for showing up for the first <laughs> section of this episode. She totally bailed on me. She is asleep in my my recliner behind me right now. So thank you, Jasmine, for not being my guest for much of this. Uh... <laughs> But hey, if you do have any news items that you want me to look over and talk about, you know how to find me. Uh, you can email it to mediasandwichshow at gmail.com, or you can tweet it at me at media underscore sandwich. Uh, hey, not for nothing, I'm on Tumblr at tumblr.com slash media dash sandwich. Uh, there's always a dash or an underscore, except for on Hive Social, where I'm just at media sandwich. I'm not sure, is Hive Social still alive or not? Last couple of times I've checked in, it was like, the servers are down. The servers are down. Thank you for your patience, but the servers are down. So, uh, check me out in all of those places, and look me up on Letterboxd. I'm, uh, K.R. Martinak on Letterboxd. Uh, but yeah, and, uh, until we talk again next week, uh, I am always Kyle Martinak, and, uh, I'm gonna go have me a sandwich.